All right, it's a joy to be with you. Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, in your copy of the scriptures, the 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're studying verses 25 through 40 today. I'm grateful for to Josh and to Steve and to Jay and Bo for allowing me to have the opportunity to come and teach to you. Um, as I started studying for this passage, I soon read that almost every commentator was in agreement that this passage is the hardest one in Corinthians to understand. So I said, all right, now I know why they uh, recruited me, not, to, not because I uh, uh, am uh, any skilled in that, but they just wanted to put me to the test. They said, all right, this guy wants to go out on church playing. He's better, you better be able to interpret 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40. So anyway, now that's not the reason why, but it's a joy. It's a joy to study this passage. And honestly, you know, for many of us here in this room, it's a it's just a hard passage. It's one of those that has really just pricked my own heart to really think about my marriage and to see how am I honoring the Lord and marriage. And so anyway, if you would, we have notes out there for you. Um, The title of our message today is Trustworthy Counsel for Singlehood and Marriage. Trustworthy Counsel for Singlehood and Marriage. In William Shakespeare, Shakespeare's classic work, Hamlet, we read this iconic line that you're familiar with, to be or not to be? That is the question, right? Well, when, uh, what we see there in Hamlet is that his famous quote was sadly pondering the question of life and death. When we look at our society today, we even look within the church, there's another question which many have pondered throughout history, and that's the question To get married or not to get married? That is the question. You know, perhaps you're here and you're single today. This is a question maybe that you're wrestling through. Um, Many of you here are not single today. And maybe you have children. Maybe you have grandchildren that you are trying to help wrestle through that very question. So it doesn't matter what stage of life we come to today. This is a question between singleness and marriage that really impacts every single one of us. And as we turn to the scripture, we have to ask ourselves, does the Bible have anything to say about this question? Does God's infallible, inerrant, sufficient word give us any kind of counsel, any kind of instruction to help us work through this question? And of course, we say absolutely, right? 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40 provides for us the most important resource ever recorded on singleness and marriage. Go ahead and follow along with me as I read our passage, starting in verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep, as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as those as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as those they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. 
One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, if it, and if it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Well, we saw in chapter 7, verse 1, that there was a switch in focus. Paul has gone from correcting the Corinthian church over their, these disturbing reports of division and of disobedience to now focusing his attention on these questions. I like to picture 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as Paul's Q&A on marriage. Here's Paul. We can kind of picture him. He's at this marriage and family conference. You know, at the end, we have this panel discussion and the crowd starts to get to, to throw their hard questions and try to stump the pastor and all that. So we can kind of picture almost the Corinthian church here now firing off question after question to Paul on matters uh, related to marriage. And the background of this and um, of this context is that it would seem that in the Corinthian church, there was this influence of ascetic teaching that there were these quote-unquote spiritual teachers within the church that were advising that not only should man not have sexual relations with his wife, but that in fact marriage in itself was borderline sinful. And so here's Paul then with these questions as they're trying to work through what's going on, what's the, the best way to understand marriage. Paul then comes alongside as a loving shepherd and helps correct their, te- uh, their, their thinking and points them into a honoring, Christ-honoring direction. We saw in verses one through nine, he says, yes, it's good to have sex within marriage. It's good to give yourself to your wife or your wife give herself to your husband. In fact, we are commanded to sacrificially serve each other in this way. And then in verses 10 through 16, he says, no, it's not good for you to get out of your marriage. We don't seek to, to get divorced. However, if an unbeliever does leave you, then Paul says he permits that, that now that believer is released from the marriage covenant. And then in verse 17, as, um, um, man, forgetting your name. Why is just blanked on me? Um, I know your son, Gabriel, Savannah, Clay. See, I told you, you are testing me today. In verse 17, Clay walked us through Paul's pastoral advice. There, Paul briefly interrupts his answers with a pastoral challenge. He says, all right, hey, church, kind of takes his glasses off. He looks at him. Get one thing in your mind here. I need you to understand one thing. If you're content, if you would learn 
how to remain where you are, all these questions that you're asking me are going to be solved. Questions about marriage, questions about singleness, so on and so forth. If you would learn to be content, everything will work itself out. And so there he is from verses 17. Um, Through 24, he gives them this theological background, this foundation to be content. And then in verse 25, he again resumes answering his questions centered upon singleness and marriage. If we could summarize our passage today, I would say it like this. Paul gives trustworthy counsel to help singles and widows answer the question of whether they should marry. To stay single or get married Paul says, hey, I got you, church. I have some some counsel to give to you. His trustworthy uh, counsel is applied in these verses to two different groups of singles. He's going to apply his counsel first to singles who have never been married before. That's what we see in verses 25 through 38. And then he's going to address his counsel to single widows. So with that, let's look then at Paul's trustworthy counsel for singles his trustworthy counsel for singles. And I want to look and answer uh, this, this counsel. What is this counsel by asking four questions? First, who is the target audience? Who is the target audience? Look at verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins. The term there for virgin, virgin is used in this passage to, to speak of a woman who is of marriageable age. We see that in verse 28, in verse 34, verses 36 through 38. This pictures a young woman, one who is single, who is available, uh, who has never before been married. But as Paul goes on, what we see from context is that he actually is addressing all men and all women who have never been married before in these verses. And why do I say that? Because he says it's now concerning virgins. There's a situation going on within the church concerning virgins that Paul has been asked about. Now, there is absolutely a huge debate on what exactly is going on here, and I don't have nearly enough time to go through it, so I'm just going to go high level here. There's three options when we think of what is going on in this church. The first option is is that this is a spiritual marriage. Paul is uh, being asked here about two believers who have entered into marriage but are not engaging in sexual relations. And just to be honest, this clearly can't be the case because Paul's just denounced that in verses 2 through 6. So we can just kind of set that one aside as not being a liable option. The second option, though, is in fact a very strong position and could be the choice. This is what the NASB, if you have the NASB, this is the option the NASB takes. It's this, that Paul is addressing a situation between a father and his virgin daughter. Should the father allow his virgin daughter to get married, or should he keep her celibate to the Lord? What's the reasons for that option? Well, first, this fits the cultural milieu of Paul's day. And Paul's context, the father was the one who often exercised authority over his household, uh, directing whether or not his daughter could marry and who she was to marry. But the, the most critical piece of evidence is actually looking at verse 38. Look at verse 38 here. And there is a change of verbs, which you don't see in the English, but you see in the Greek. Paul switches from a verb gameo to a verb gamitso. And elsewhere in the New Testament, 
Every time we see the word gemitzo, it always means to give someone in marriage. That's why in verse 38, if you have the NAS, it says a father who gives um, his virgin daughter in marriage does well. We see Jesus using this in Matthew 22, verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry, gemeto, nor are given in marriage, gemitzo. Same thing in Luke 17, 27. So just from that piece alone, this looks like pretty strong evidence that we have the idea here of a father giving his daughter away in marriage. However, as you can tell, I am not convinced. And the third, and what I believe is the most likely option, so if you have the ESV, this is the option the ESV takes, is that Paul is addressing a man and a woman who are engaged. They're engaged or they're betrothed. There's five good reasons why that's the better option. First, there's nothing in this passage, apart from this one verbal switch in verse 38, that would even point us in the direction of a father and a daughter. If you look at verse 26, what's in focus? It's a man marrying a woman. Same thing in verse 28. It's a man marrying a woman or a woman marrying a man. Verses 29 through 31, we have marriage as being the picture. Verses 32 through 35, a man marrying a woman. Second, we find no key terms such as a father or daughter here. There is silence on that. And third, there's no textual, textual evidence that a father would ever call his daughter his virgin or his own virgin. Rather, as we see in Acts 21.9, Philip referring to his daughters, not as his four virgins, but as his four virgin daughters. And so if Paul has the idea here of virgin, uh, of fathers and daughters, we would see that language, but it's absent. A fourth reason here is that Paul's counsel would contradict his statement earlier that singleness and celibacy was a gift, right? There's, on one hand, there's difference between a daughter choosing singleness to honor the Lord, and on the other hand, a father forcing his daughter to stay single to the Lord. And then lastly, and what is the most convincing is regarding this change of verbs in verse 38. Um, there's a lot of grammatical reasons for it, and I'm not going to uh, bore you with that, but essentially what it comes down to is that the reason why Paul uses a different verb is because now he is using a direct object. And so in other words, what we're saying here is, Paul's just trying to use correct grammar. He's just trying to be a, a man that uses correct grammar. We shouldn't read anything else into the text. So that's an overview of this huge debate that I read for hours and hours gone in five seconds. But apparently, so in summary then, apparently what's happening is this. There's poor teaching happening in the church. There's these spiritual teachers that are influencing this young couple. They're engaged. They're saying, no, no, don't get married. That's bad. And they're like, oh no, should we continue to get married? We're engaged already. What should we do, Paul? And so Paul is going to counsel them. He's going to say, hey, you know, in my opinion, I think singleness is better, but honestly, you have freedom to get married. And so that's what uh, we see there for the audience. Then what is the trustworthy counsel? What's the, the trustworthy counsel? What does Paul say here in these verses? Well, that can unfold in three propositions. First, he says that singleness, singleness is, uh, there is no, excuse me, singles, there is no command from the Lord on this issue. 
Look at verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Paul writes, Uh, uh, recognizes that Jesus never gave a direct command that a single person is to marry another person. There's no direct command that you have to get married. Rather, what does Jesus teach? Matthew 19, 12, talking to his disciples. They're like, oh, Jesus, that teaching on marriage is hard. Maybe it's better not to get married. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, this statement is not for everyone. Not everyone is supposed to be married, but only those to whom God has given it. In other words, Jesus is saying singleness is a gift. That's what Paul has already said. Singleness is a gift. There is no command that says a person has to get married. However, what does Paul say here then? However, while there's not a command, I am giving an opinion that is trustworthy. This is not a thus saith the Lord issue. I have a an opinion, a conviction, a guideline here. I have sound wisdom to give to you, church, but it's not carefree advice. This is not Paul just saying, eh, you know, here's my two cents, take it, leave it, whatever. No, this is trustworthy. This is, as he says, one who has been shown the mercy of the Lord, not referring to his salvation, but to his ministry. One who is an apostle, that God has shown mercy to him as an apostle, as their pastor. And so what Paul then is saying is that he is coming to them, giving them authoritative advice as their pastor, as their apostle. All right, this is what every good pastor does. He knows when to pound the pulpit, when God's word speaks clearly on something, but he knows when to tread lovingly and wisely when God's word does not speak clearly on a subject. And so here it is. Here's Paul. This panel discussion is going on. These questions are flying around. Should I get married? Should I not? Paul says, hey, guys, you know, I don't, I don't have a direct command here, but as your pastor, as one who loves you, hey, let me give you some, some wisdom here. Let me give you wisdom that I would think will help you make your decision. So there's no command from the Lord on this issue. But secondly, singles, be content where you are. Singles, be content where you are. Look at verse 26. I think then that it is good in the view of the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek to be, uh, do not seek a wife. So what is Paul's counsel here? It's to be good, to be to remain, to be content, as we talked about last time. In other words, what Paul's saying is just be content with your circumstances. We might say, hey guys, just bloom where you're planted. Be content. Are you bound to a wife? Are you married? Yeah, that's good, but, and don't seek to be released. But if you're not bound to a wife, if you're single and you're not married, then hey, that's good too. Don't seek a wife, rather be content. And then third, we see singles, you do have freedom to marry. Singles, you do have freedom to marry. That's verse 28. Yes, be content where you are. Yes, it's good to remain where you're at, but... If you decide to get married, he says in verse 28, you've not sinned, right? You have freedom here. There is liberty here. Guys, if you marry, you've not sinned. Girls, if you get married, you have not sinned. This is a wisdom decision, not a command decision, not a thus saith the Lord decision. But that leads us then to the next question, right? Paul says, hey, you got freedom on this, guys. 
but there's some very important factors that you need to consider before you make this decision, right? You need to think long and hard before you make the most important decision of your life. So what are these important factors that Paul wants these, and wants this couple, wants these single adults to think of before they jump in to marriage? Well, there's four of them. The first one is this, is the present distress. They needed to consider the present distress. Look at verse 26. He says, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress. Now there's debate over what uh, is meant here by present distress. It's plausible that Paul is talking about the end times distresses that will come when uh, surrounding the tribulation and all those kind of things. But because of Paul's usage of this very word elsewhere, it's better to see this as an actual distressing situation that the, the Corinthians were presently going through. And what that is, we don't really know. Some commentators speculate that there's, there was an international famine known uh, sometime around this period. He doesn't, they don't know if Paul's talking about that famine. They don't know if Paul's talking about some kind of persecution. But whatever it is, regardless, what Paul's saying is that, man, there's something going on in y'all's lives and the church there that's so tough that, hey, you might really want to think about getting married during the tough times that you're going through, right? We can think of it like this. A pastor in Israel, he, he might have a, a young couple that comes up to him and says, hey, God, uh, pastor, I really w- we really want to get married right now. And that pastor might look at him and say, you really want to get married with everything that's going on in, in the world right now? He might tell them, hey, it's best because of this pressing, um, this present distress to just kind of kind of wait on on marriage. Leon Morris, he writes this, quote, when high seas are raging, it's no time for changing ships. So right now, there's already enough going on in your world, Corinthians. Do you really want to burden yourself with, um, with the extra pressure of marriage? Think of this present distress. <coughs> Second, he says, hey, this is also something you need to consider. Marriage brings conflict. Marriage brings conflict, verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. All right, just quick show of hands. Anybody not have any conflict in their marriage? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? Every one of us. Conflicts. Why? Because when you get two sinners together who say, I do, and you press them together, there's inevitable trouble that is going to spring up within a marriage, right? You have a one spouse with the, the baby crying in the bedroom and the baby will not be quiet. And that spouse is, oh, I gotta go again, get that baby. I'm gonna go pick him up and rock him and put him to sleep. And the other spouse is, you better not touch that baby. You better not touch that baby. You're gonna let him cry it out right now, right? And so all of a sudden you have conflicts. Conflict, right? That's what marriage does. It brings conflicts. Now the Lord works through conflict, obviously to sanctify us and, and all those things. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, guys, girls, sure you want to go through that, right? You need to think about what happens in marriage. Marriage can be messy. Most of the counseling that the church, that happens in the church is over marital conflicts. Are you ready for that? He says, I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to spare you here from those cold, miserable nights out on the couch all alone, right? Think about what marriage brings, but third, and this is really what he's getting to, 
as these next two factors is that eternity is coming. Eternity is coming. Look at verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. We're in the last days, church. Do you not understand that Christ is coming soon? Eternity is on the horizon. Therefore, we need to live and we need to view everything within the scope of that soon-to-be day when we will see Christ face to face. As Tom Schreiner writes, quote, the hour before the end is brief and believers should constantly live in light of the end. Everything in life must be recalibrated and considered in light of the imminence of the end. Paul says eternity changes everything. It changes how we view and live out our marriages. Look at verse 29. (coughs) So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. It changes how we view and react to the sorrows and joys of life. Verse 30, and those who weep as as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. It changes how we view and utilize our possessions. Verse 31, uh, 30 and 31. And those who buy as those as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of the world. Right, don't, don't misunderstand Paul here. He he's not saying that we are to no longer carry out our marital duties. No, this is the man who in Ephesians 5 said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Nourish her, cherish her, take care of her, point her to Christ. Give yourself to your wife. This is the same man who said in Ephesians 5, Wives, respect your husbands, love your husbands, submit to your husbands. No, Paul's not saying we throw out our marital duties. He's just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, No, we give ourselves to marital duties. He isn't saying that we don't weep with those who weep. He's not saying we don't rejoice with those who rejoice. He's already told us us that in Romans chapter 12. He isn't saying that we reject the world and live as hermits. No, he rejects that in Colossians chapter two. Rather, what he is saying is that we must view all things in light of eternity and live as such, right? We don't sink our hopes. We don't sink our, our dreams or our aspirations into this fleeting world. Marriage is temporary. Pains are temporary. Possessions are temporary. And one day they're all going to pass away like a leaf on a blustery autumn day. But eternity is coming. Our Lord Jesus is coming on a white horse with flaming eyes of flaming fire with royal diadems upon his head. He is going to conquer. He is going to crush his enemies. And we are going to reign with Christ forever and ever. Eternity is coming. Therefore, live your life in light of that. So while marriage and all that is good, marriage is not the end all be all. I love my wife, but Christ is the one who's gonna remain forever and ever. I'm not gonna be married to my wife forever and ever, though that would be amazing because I have you know, best wife. But what Paul is saying here is don't value your wife. Don't value your possessions. Don't value the joys and the sorrows of life more than what you value of what is to come, right? All these things, they're, they're kind of like the light refreshments at a dinner party or maybe at things gathering tonight. 
We enjoy them now while we can, but we don't stuff ourselves with the appetizers because we have a main course to come that is going to be far greater and far more surpassing than any of the other things that come before it. Robertson and, Robertson and, and Plummer write this, though Paul counsels none to change their status, he does counsel all to change their attitude toward earthly things. Singles, eternity's coming. Make your decision in light of it. That brings us fourthly, that they need to consider that marriage produces distractions. Marriage produces distractions. In light of this eternal, eternal reality, soon come, Paul says in verse 32, hey, I want you to be free from concern, but I want you to be free from concern. The word for concern is the same word that we see in other places like Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus speaks of anxieties or the, the cares of the world. It's the same word that's used of Martha in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. You're concerned about so many things. And what we see in those passages is that the things that are cares or worries or concerns, they're not wrong. Now, these are good things. We should care about what we eat. We should care about what the clothes that we wear. We should care about making our home hospitable for our guests. But in each of these contexts, we see that pri these priorities came before Christ. What Paul is saying here is that we must not seek first his kingdom, excuse me, we must first seek his kingdom in his righteousness before the cares of the world. We must seek the better portion of sitting at Jesus' feet and worshiping him before we get in all a kerfuffle about what our house looks like. And the same is true in marriage, Paul says. Paul warns us that, that marital concerns, they just tend to, to, to leak into our lives and to, to edge out what should be the first priority in our hearts. Married couples have an uncanny knack for allowing lesser priorities that are good and that are right and that are true, but we often allow them to become the more important realities to overshadow Christ and his gospel. And so Paul goes on to, to illustrate that in verse 32. He says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the Lord of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. Ladies, same thing for you. Paul says the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, <coughs> that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So what Paul says here is that the unmarried man and the woman, unmarried woman and virgin, they all only have one concern. That's Christ. They wake up in the morning, there's only one thing that goes through their mind. How can I use my time, my energy, my resources, everything that I have to serve Christ today? How can I give myself fully to pursue holiness today? The married man or the married woman, on the other hand, has those same concerns, but they have other concerns as well. They wake up saying, Lord, how can I please you today? Lord, how can I give myself in holiness to honor and glorify you today? But also, how can I provide for my wife today? How can I submit to my husband today? How can I train my children to know and love Christ today? It's in this way that Paul says that their interests are divided. 
Notice he says divided. He doesn't say sinful, but divided. He doesn't say wrong, but they're distributed. Paul's not disparaging the concerns of married couples. He's not dogging marriage. He's not lowering it down. He's just being practically realistic. Married people, they have interests to please the Lord. They also have interests to please their spouse. In fact, they have to have those if they want to honor Christ and fulfill their duty and calling as a husband and wife. Single people, on the other hand, they don't have many of the other concerns that that married people do. They have more time, more energy, more resources to devote themselves wholeheartedly to serving the Lord. John MacArthur writes on this point, quote, Paul's point is not that the married believer has divided spiritual loyalties or that the unmarried is more spiritually faithful, but practically the unmarried person is potentially able to set himself or herself apart from the things of this life more exclusively for the Lord's work than is the married. That's Paul's point here. And notice, you know, this is, this is tough, right? This is tough for us to kind of digest as married, married people. But Paul's point here is not to burden us, but rather to, to benefit us. Look at verse 35. He says, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. The word therefore restrain literally means a noose. Paul's saying, I'm not trying to put a noose around your neck to choke you into submission to be a single and be celibate. No, that's not what he's trying to do here. He's trying to just promote what is best, what, what is for your most spiritual benefit in the, in the sense that, um, that marriage, as he says, often distracts, but rather singleness provides an undistracted devotion, opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he is trying to promote hearts that can be as free as possible to enjoy Christ as much as possible. So singles, you're free to marry, but you really need to consider these factors. That brings us then to the specific application. The specific application. He's been talking generally, and now he's going to talk specifically. How do we apply this Paul. Well, Paul sums it up in two applications. In verse 36, it's the, the man, the single, this could be man or lady, but, but he's focusing here on the men. The man who does not have the gift of singleness should marry. That's his application of his counsel in verse 36. Now, how do we know that this man does not have the gift of singleness? Well, it's because he doesn't have a firm conviction. Look at verse 36. <clears throat> and here I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, forgive me for that. No, I'm just kidding. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So here we have a man who is thinking that he is not behaving properly towards his virgin, that is toward his fiance. This is opposite of what Paul has just said in verse 35 about appropriate conduct. This man believes that he is, if he is to continue to marry, excuse me, if he is going to continue to to not marry this young lady, that he is acting disgracefully. He is firmly convicted that this would be a dishonorable thing to not get married. 
He is firm in his conviction that he should marry this girl. So he doesn't have a firm conviction over singleness, but rather over marriage. And then second, how do we know that he doesn't have the gift of singleness? It's because he doesn't have firm self-control. The verse continues to say, if his passions are strong. And now there's two options here. It's difficult really to understand what's the best interpretation. It could be as the NASB translates it, it could be she is past her youth. This would mean that the man is under social pressure that here is this young lady, she's past her youth. Everything in society is telling you, hey, you have to marry her. And so he's not convinced that he's acting properly by prolonging the marriage since this is going against his culture. Now, that could be the option, but the better translation is that if his passions are strong, referring to his sexual desires, this best fits the lexical data in the context of the rest of the chapter. Early in verse nine, Paul says that if their passions burn and if they do not have self-control, they need to marry. That's what Paul is reiterating here in this verse. This man's sexual desires were strong. He, he can't get them under control. Paul says, okay, then for you, you need to marry. You do not have the gift of singleness. Don't prolong the marriage and place yourselves under constant strain of temptation. So for you, if it has to be, let let them marry. It is no sin. But then he moves on to the man who does have the gift of singleness. The man who does have the gift of singleness, Paul applies his counsel that they should remain as they are. A man who does have the gift of singleness should should remain as he is. We see that this man does have firm conviction. Look at verse 37. Notice what it says about him. But he who stands firm in his heart. It goes on later in the verse to say, he has decided in his own heart, right? This man, he's firm in his conviction. He he is standing unmoved. He is confident. He is fully settled that you know what? In light of everything, it's better for me not to go forward and to marry. Second, not only does he have a firm conviction, but he has firm self-control. He has firm self-control. He says he is under no constraint, but rather he has authority over his own will, right? He has self-control over his desires. His passions are not tossing him back and forth like like a little toy boat on the raging sea, right? He, He is able to consistently hit the brakes on the powerful engine that is his sexual drive. This is the guy that Paul says is the one who has the gift of singleness. And for him, Paul counsels him, Hey, remain as you are. Remain as you are. You will do well to keep your own virgin. That is to keep her a virgin and not marry her. And then he sums up in verse 38. So then, here's my summary. He who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. You're free to stay single. You're free to get married. To get married does well, to stay single does better. Better not in the sense of morally, not in the sense of spiritually. They're not spiritually better, contrary to the Roman Catholic teaching. It's not that those who choose singleness have chosen to fly first class, while those who have chosen to get married are, are down there in economy, right? It's not that understanding, but functionally, practically, as we've already talked about, in one's walk with the Lord, 
right? Singleness promotes the best opportunity for one to devote themselves wholeheartedly to undistracted service to Christ. It's better in the sense like this. It's more like the person who who chooses to take a test in the peace and quiet of an isolated room as compared to the person who decides to take the test at the local coffee shop. Both are perfectly fine decisions. Both you will do well, hopefully if you study for the test, but practically speaking, one is better out, one is better at drowning out distractions than the other. In that in that sense, Paul says is better. Well, Paul finishes his trustworthy counsel to widows in verse 39 for through 40. Those who are now widowed and single, Paul applies what he has just taught to, the, uh, to them. And what is the, the trustworthy counsel? He unfolds it in three propositions. First, widows are free to marry. We see that in verse 39. In verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. So just as a, a as long as a man and woman are alive, they're, they're bound together, right? The Lord says, what I have put together, let no man separate. Yet once her husband dies, she is now free. She is released from that marriage covenant and not just free, uh, and she is free to, not just to marry, but to marry, notice what the text says, to whom she wishes, right? Children don't get to tell mom and dad who they get to marry next, right? She is free, or he, if it's a widower, is free to marry whomever she wishes, but there is one stipulation here. Paul's counsel is to widows. They must marry another believer. They're free to marry whomever they want, only in the Lord. They're only free to marry another believer. And by the way, this is not just a command to to, to widows or widowers. This is a command to all singles, to all singles. There's no missionary dating here, right? Scripture teaches that believers marry believers. Widows must marry another believer. And then we get thirdly though, Paul says you're free, marry another believer if you want. However, widows would be happier if they remain single. Widows, yeah, y'all, y'all are free. You can get married. But in my opinion, as I think of it, as I have authoritative and and godly advice and wisdom for you, I think you would be happier if you remain single. So all those factors that applied earlier, Paul says, think about those things as well, and you will be happier if you remain single. At the end of the day, it's contentment. That's Paul's theological groundwork, the framework. Be content where you are. Remain as you are, and that is best. So to get married or not to get married, right? That is the question. Thanks be to God that he's given us trustworthy counsel to help us make a decision. And as we close, we have a few minutes left. This will probably be flying through here. Uh, I have two groups of application. First, maximizing your singleness. If you are a single in this room or you have children or grandchildren that are single and you're trying to help them think through, wrestle through singleness, here is some some applications we can draw. First is this, consider whether you have the gift of singleness. All right, first, understand it. Lord, have you gifted me to be a single? Have you not? Well, how do you know whether or not you have the gift of singleness? Well, look at what Paul says here. Are you firm in your conviction? Uh, are you not um, going to, to buckle in to necessarily what your mom and dad tell you or grandma and grandpa, you have to get married, but you're firm in your conviction. 
You're, you're, you're steadfast in, in saying, you know what? Singleness, I think, is best to honor and serve the Lord. And then second, are you able to maintain self-control? Do you have control over your, your desires? And so if you do have the gift of singleness, then do what? Use it. Use it to the glory of God. Right? Paul's point in these whole verses is that singles have the best practical opportunity to serve the Lord. Your singleness is not so you can just live it up however you want, but to use it, to use it for God's glory. It's a gift, not meant, not to, meant, not meant to be squandered. How do you do that? Devote your extra time that you have as a single to Bible study and prayer. Devote your extra time to serving in the ministries of the church. You don't have all the other things that a, a couple does or that, as a family who has young kids. You have freedom to serve in the ministries of the church. Get involved. Devote your extra time to evangelism and missions. Right? That was Paul's whole mindset. Hey, I'm free. I don't have a wife. I don't have children. I can go to Spain and I can preach the gospel in Spain. Hey, I can go to Galatia and I can tell them, hey, stop believing in, in Judea, uh, uh, being led astray by the Judaizers. Paul has freedom and he's saying, singles, you have freedom. Use it to evangelize and do missions. And then devote your extra resources to supporting the work of the local and global church. Use your singleness to the glory of God. If you don't have the gift of singleness, as you, as you think about it and you pray and you ask others and you, you wrestle through it and you're like, you know what, Lord, I don't have the gift of singleness. What should you do? Be content. That's Paul's point. Remain as you are. Be content and, and don't worry about it. Verse 21 there, he talks to, to slaves. He said, were you called by a slave? Don't worry about it. If you're able to become free, great, do that. Same thing to singles. Hey, if you have the freedom, you have the opportunity to get married, great, do it. But in the meantime, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Be, uh, wait for the, the right spouse. Don't look for just Joe Blow off the street, but you're looking for a godly man who will lead you, who will guide you, or a godly woman. Prepare yourself as you wait for that spouse. Prepare yourself for them. And then use your singleness. While the time you have until marriage, use your singleness to the glory of God. Now, turning to married couples, you're saying, well, how, how can I learn much about marriage in a passage speaking to singlehood? Well, I think this passage has much to teach us. It, it profoundly helps us to think about how to maximize our marriage. First is this. <clears throat> secure your devotion to Christ, right? What does Paul say about marriage? He says, man, it, it can get so easily, we can so easily be distracted in marriage to take our focus and our devotion off Christ and to put it on our spouse or put it on our kids or put it, put it on something else. Paul says, no, secure your devotion to Christ above all else. Second, serve your spouse, Serve your spouse so their interests might first and foremost be devoted to Christ. Right? I love spending time with my wife, but I want her to seek time with Christ more and before she spends time with me. At all costs, we must promote the spiritual well-being of our spouse so that they are pursuing Christ more and before they are pursuing us. Right? Live and serve so that your spouse would be seeking Christ. And then strive, strive to be a team that maximizes your marriage to bear the most fruit. 
Right? Paul's concern is that marriage becomes more about pleasing each other rather than about pleasing the Lord. It becomes more about building our retirement plan or saving for the next vacation or getting the kids into the right school or whatever it might be. And while those things are not bad, Paul says, they can't become first priority. Come together, maximize your marriage, strive as a team to build the church. Be like Aquila and Priscilla. Those were Paul's running mates, right? They use, they maximize their marriage to see the gospel go forward, to see Christ proclaimed and the church built. Be a team in that way. And then strain, strain towards personal holiness and spur your spouse on to personal holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ, for all his many benefits, that you pardon our iniquities, that you heal all our diseases, you redeem our life from the pit, you crown us with steadfast love and mercy, you satisfy us with good, so our youth will be renewed like the eagles. And Lord, one of those good things that you have given us is both singleness and marriage. God, help us to maximize whichever gift we fall into, whether we are a single here and called to singleness. Help us, God, to learn from Paul's trustworthy counsel to maximize our singleness, to use it for the glory of God. And Lord, if we are a married couple in this room today, Father, I pray that we would seek to, to secure our devotion to Christ, not allow the, the, the competing affections are around us or the interests around us to divide us from Christ. But Lord, let us come together as a team as we, as we grow closer to Christ, we grow closer to each other and to use our marriages, to maximize our marriages for the glory of God. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.